Okay. Hey, we're going. Okay. Hello. <laughs> I want to go ahead and do the little oh, first okay. piece. Oh, no. Hold on. Siri you're heard good, me talking. Good. All right. Oh, I was like, what is that? I know, right? You can just say things and Siri will just automatically respond. <laughs> All right. Well, hello and welcome to the Not a Victim podcast. Not a Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guest is Danielle Kitchens. Did I get your last name right? Yes, you did. Oh, man. That was such a gamble. All right. So, um, just tell me a little bit about your background, everything from your upbringing to adolescence and all that stuff. Okay. Well, um, I was born back in 1974, so that makes me uh, 43 years old. old. Actually, yeah, 44 next week, so I'm still holding on to 43. But um, I was born here in Milledgeville, actually, but um, and my parents were very young when I was born, So, and I was the firstborn, so they were still kind of stuck in their party mode back then. Um, so for the most part, I was raised by my grandparents, um, and then we moved to Jacksonville when I was four years old. My dad had actually gotten locked up when I was about three years old, and my mother and my grandparents and I moved down to Jacksonville. We lived down there until I was actually 24, so I spent my entire adolescence in Jacksonville. Uh, my father got out of prison when I was about six, I suppose, so I lived with them, and then I had a sister and a brother come along, but my parents still really didn't want to grow up, and we were all about six years apart, me and my brother and sisters, and uh, so I was pretty much the live-in housekeeper, live-in babysitter while they did their partying, and and it was, for the most part, a lot of drinking, a lot of pot smoking. And, I, you know, every now and then I would see them doing other things, um, mm. some cocaine use. One time I even saw my dad with a needle hanging out of his arm when I was mm. about 12. That was probably the most traumatic experience I had with the, you know, experience and the drug use in the house. So when I was 11 or 12, I decided it would be best if I went and lived with my grandparents, mainly because I was... They're a baby girl, and they spoiled me rotten, and they were pretty well off, so um, I pretty much got whatever I wanted. And we lived at the beach, so it was the perfect the perfect lifestyle. It was the perfect home life. Um, I was the only person there, so I was the center of attention. And my grandparents, my grandfather never had any children, so I was his baby girl from birth. I was his first baby, so mm. I was his pride and joy. And like I said, we lived at the beach, and it was just the perfect life, you know, growing up. I went to a great high school. I had great friends, but I didn't have the Lord. And, you know, I thought I had everything from a very early age, but it wouldn't be until, you know, late in my 30s when I would realize that I had always been missing something. But we'll mm. get there in a moment. We'll, yeah. Let me backtrack a little bit. <laughs> yeah, keep going, keep going. So anyway, all through high school, I guess... When I hit about 12 or 13, maybe 14, of course, the only lifestyle I ever knew growing up was, of course, the party lifestyle. And here I am living at the beach, and that's what we did all the time. We'd have parties, and before I knew it, you know, I was falling into the same pattern that I was accustomed to as a adolescent. So just the typical beach parties and keg parties and smoking pot and this and that, you name it, and then... Back then, it was, you know, in the 90s, so it was some psychedelics, you know, mushrooms and acid and that sort of thing. Um, it wouldn't, it was never to the point where I felt like I was controlled by it, 
because I always still did very good in school. I was a straight-A student, and I always worked hard. I started working at a very early age, as soon as I could, like 15. I think I got my first job. And, you know, I worked all the time. I was had good, strong work ethic. I had good morals, good values. I just thought I just like to have a good time, hmm. and I thought I could manage it. And for the most part, I did. Um, but then when I got to be out of high school, I guess, was when it started to get a little bit worse, just partying all the time. I would work. I was working two jobs, but I basically worked just to make money to go out you know, after work and mm. stay at the bar till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was always you know, looking for companionship, and I never really had a steady boyfriend. I did, like, for a few years in high school, but for the most part, I just, you know, went from person to person and just always searching for love and the best way I knew to find that love was of course you know through my sexuality for Mm. the most part so it was just an endless cycle of just drinking and partying and working and drinking and partying and working until finally when I was about 24 I figured that I had had enough it'd be best if I moved back to Georgia to be around family because my grandparents by this time had moved back to Georgia as well. So I was had been in Jacksonville for about three years by myself after they left when I like right when I graduated high school. So that would be when I was right. eighteen and I moved back when I was twenty three. So that's when I decided to move back to Georgia. I was working at public supermarkets and I was in management, so I had a really good job and I was doing well, but still liked to drink a lot and have a good time. That's what I thought having a good time was about. Hmm. And still, you know, didn't know the Lord. And still searching for love. Still, you know, I would, you know, throw myself at different managers that I was working for or whoever, you know, would basically give me attention. I mean, I was Hmm. the fun girl. I was the person that people liked to hang out with. I just wasn't the person that anyone wanted to be in a relationship with, so to speak, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Tell me about... um... Tell me about how you wound up in, in a wheelchair. Well, then... Like, so, <laughs> Maybe you're getting to that point. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I may get a little sidetracked, and yeah, if yeah. I kind of get off no, the topic, you There's no way it has to rein go, me so. in a little bit. However you want to go is fine. But, so, by the time I was 30, I still hadn't really, um, you know, found anyone. And, of course, I had been wanting to have kids, and I was like, well, gosh, you know, am I never going to find the right man? I had, you know, thought I was in love a couple times with a few different people that I had met at work, but, you know, it never worked out. But then my um, sister invited me to go spend the weekend at a cabin that she had, and um, a few other family members were going to go there as well, and they called me and let me know that uh, a friend of ours that we had known all of our life, he actually grew up next door to my grandmother in my dad's mother that lived here in Georgia, had had grown up next door to her, and wanted to know if, if I minded if he came along. Well, of course I didn't because I'd known him my whole life. And he had actually just gotten out of prison. He had been in prison for a couple years. And mm. uh, needless to say, we it was my uncle and his wife and my sister and her husband and then Miles. And he and I ended up hooking up that mm. weekend. And we dated for about two months. And then he ended up moving in with me in Atlanta and... I ended up getting pregnant and found out in December I was pregnant. We were married in February. And then my son was born in July. Um, But he had an issue with drugs 
before he went to prison. And, of course, that habit just creeped right back up. Um, he was more into, like, meth and cocaine and stuff like that. And I really had never... Of course, I had dabbled with those sorts of things, but that was never my cup of tea. I was never into those sorts of things. But that's what he had started back on. So mm. our marriage didn't last very long at all mm. because he just his drug addiction took him over. So our marriage fell apart, and then um, I started dating someone and actually got in a good relationship. We were together for several years, and I had calmed. I, I wasn't doing any drugs at all. I was drinking a little bit, but you know, for the most part, I was working hard. And just, you know, going with the flow. But then I broke my knee in an uh, accident uh, on a four-wheeler. And, of course, I had to have surgery, so I started taking Lortabs for my knee surgery. And my mother, my grandmother and my grandfather, they had pain pills had always been, like, around in the family. So it was always, my grandmother was the kind of person that she would hand out a Lortab or something like that just if he had a headache. So, you know, it was never really like a problem I didn't see taking pain pills as a problem back then but then of course when I was prescribed the pain pills it became a problem and I pretty much for about a couple years would just take pain pills whenever they were available for the most part Mm. and then it got started getting worse and worse my uh, grandmother was taking oxycodone and then she would start giving those to me whenever I needed one and then before I knew it I was you know, good and whatever I could possibly get them. And I ended up losing my job at Publix because of them. Um, and then I was working at Applebee's waitressing, and I was still taking the oxycodone as often as I could. And after work one night, we decided to go to a bowling alley, and we went to the bowling alley. We were drinking and smoking, and I'd been taking pills, Xanax, and oxycodone. And on my way home that night, I was in an act. I fell asleep behind the wheel and wrecked my car. Hmm. And I suffered a spinal cord injury at the T3 level, which is about mid-chest. And I was paralyzed from mid-chest and below Mm. in the accident. Mm. So I spent about three months at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta and went through rehab there. And, of course, you know, coming into the terms with the fact that I would never walk again. But the crazy thing is... And again, like I said before, you know, I still didn't know the Lord at this point. But, of course, I pretty much was addicted to the pain medication before the accident. And I can remember my almost my first thought once I came to, I was out for about three or four days after I got in the hospital. And I can remember my first thoughts being, you know, well, now I guess it'll be okay for me to take pain meds. Hmm. Because it's still... I still wanted, even though they had pretty much at that point, I thought, ruined my life, I still wanted that to be part of my life because I still didn't know any better. They still controlled me. But while I was at Shepherd Center, of course, you know, they gave me the pain meds at first because I needed them, but they, of course, weaned me off of the meds while I was in there. But that didn't last because as soon as I got out of the hospital, I immediately went and found a doctor who would give me as much as I wanted. And I spent probably the first six months a complete zombie, falling asleep in my chair, leaned over. I mean, it was embarrassing. It was awful. When I got home from Shepherd Center, I, you know, I started taking a lot more pain meds than I had ever taken before because, like I said, I 
found a doctor, well, I went to the doctor that my grandmother had been going to, and he pretty much didn't examine me, didn't do anything, didn't even ask for my records or what happened to me. He pretty much just asked me what I wanted mm-hmm. and gave me whatever I wanted and had me so zombied out that I don't even know how I functioned. And I gained a bunch of weight and pretty much, I mean, I couldn't get in the shower myself. I couldn't get in the bed by myself. I couldn't do anything. And I just, like, and my son at that time was only seven. So it was, it was just a really bad time. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was living with my mother and my father and my grandmother. And all of us were on pain meds. So Mm -hmm. it was just a house full of zombies and my son was right in the middle of it and like I said my sister you know all she wanted was for me to get in church and she got was very frustrated with the whole situation because of course she has never been on anything like that so she of course had no understanding of it whatsoever and she of course didn't understand why I would go back to it when I was off of them completely when I left Shepherdson or why I would you know get right back into the terrible cycle that you know basically had put me in the wheelchair to begin with so she was very frustrated so she reached out on Facebook to all of her church family and asked if there was anyone in her church that would be willing to you know befriend me she explained my situation that I really didn't have any friends here because I grew up in Florida and that I you know was in a bad way but that I needed someone that could minister to me, someone that would not pass judgment, somebody that could just be patient and listen and just be my friend and basically kind of step in where she couldn't help me because she at this point felt that there was nothing else that she could do for me because she was so hurt by everything that had happened and she felt like she had given so much of herself to me, to my mom, to my dad, to, you know, to the family, but we were just hurting her. We weren't, you know, taking anything that, she had to say for seriously we just you know didn't care because of course we were addicted so my friend um, Tammy Smith came to start sitting with me and she is the one that finally introduced me to the Lord and made me see that Hmm. that was my only way out that that was the only way that my life was going to get any better Hmm. was if I finally decided that he could help me. Hmm. And basically from that day forward, my life has been different. Hmm. I won't say that everything changed overnight, that I stopped taking the meds right away because I didn't, but she was so patient with me. She never, she never failed me. She never left me. She never judged me. Um, she would come some days and I would still be falling over in my chair and she would just, you know, speak, speak kind to me. She would pray with me. She would, um, just to, you know, talk to me about the beauty that my life could be if I would just surrender. And mm. that's what has your, that's amazing. What has your um, relationship with God looked like as far as you've had this major personal tragedy that you're in a wheelchair and paralyzed, you know, from the waist down or whatever. And uh, somewhere around that time is the time that, you know, God in, enters the picture for you where um, there's a lot of, within people that don't believe in God, they tend to say, like, if God exists, then why do all these negative things happen? Why do all these tragedies happen? And that's a sort of reasonable um, critique from their point of view. 
but in reality, in my opinion, God's purpose is not to um, to necessarily alter the physical events that happen, uh, but rather to change the inside of what of what a person is. Like I thought about the other day, stuff like even as uh, as major as like the Holocaust or something like that, where the atheist points to that and says, "How could there be a God if this would happen?" But if you look at it the other way, it is the Christian worldview that every life has meaning that caused people to rise up and stop that. Maybe I'm beating around the bush, but I guess what I'm saying is when life is not fixed by God uh, and there's that part of your brain or at least that part of society that says, well, then he's not there and it doesn't exist. The whole thing is whatever in your mind or whatever. Um, Just what is your relationship to that? Because I know for me, it's a thing that I think about a lot and I don't, you know, there are a lot of struggles you have that I don't have and, and, and probably vice versa, but just as your relationship to God, uh, what is that like? Last thing before, <laughs> before you answer the question. The other reason um, I feel the way I do about this topic is that a couple of years ago I went through a season of depression and became suicidal. And through being suicidal, I met God in a way that I never knew before that and I started experiencing the most warm, um, free, just wonderful, beautiful um, internal experience that I'd ever had. I've never had any experience quite like it since then, and definitely not before that. And I just felt all the weight of all the guilt of all the things that I was holding on to uh, being lifted off me. And during that time, as that was happening, and I was, as I was having this mountaintop experience, I never even um, thought about the things in my life that weren't right, and nothing in my physical life got any better. But it didn't matter. I was so in a different place um, internally due to the forgiveness I'd experienced that I almost didn't really care about anything else. Um, Just any and all thoughts on that. Well, you've pretty much summed it up for me. (laughs) Everything that you said is exactly what I experienced for the most part, but... You know, I always knew there was a God. You know, I said I didn't know God before, but I, you know, I always my my parents, my grand my grandparents were Christian. So, I and my and my my grandmother on my other my dad's mother, she's always been a strong Christian woman, and so I always knew there was a God. I guess I just didn't have a personal relationship with God, so I never blamed God. You know, for putting me in the chair, so to speak. I always knew that it was my actions that put me in the chair, so I didn't blame God. I was never mad at God for, you know, what had happened to me. I was mad at myself, I guess, beat myself up for it. But once I was introduced to the Lord, it's the same way. Once I laid it all down, it was like a peace came over me that I had never experienced before. And I realized that everything that I had always been searching for, I was always searching for this great love. I was always searching for someone to to love me, to to, to pamper me, to... Um, wrap their arms around me, make me feel safe. But I, once I was introduced to the Lord, I realized it was like an aha moment that that great love had always been there. I always had that love that I had been searching for, searching for, searching for. I was just looking in the wrong places. And that the Lord loved me more than any man ever could. And that, you know, that, that, war- that safe place, that, you know, perfect life that I'd always wanted was always right within my reach. I was just afraid to cross that bridge, so to speak. 
Um, but once I feel like, why do you think that was? Do you think you were afraid of God because you thought he was angry with you? Or do you think it was just out of convenience that if you did start believing in God, you would have to stop doing exactly. I, you know, it didn't appeal to the lifestyle. Didn't appeal to me because I, you know, all I ever knew was the, you know, the parties, the, you know, the drinking, the, you know, the party lifestyle. That was what was fun to me. Hmm. I would see people talking about, you know, going to church functions or this and that. That didn't appeal to me. It didn't seem fun. If I go to these functions, I'm not going to be able to drink. I'm not going to be able, you know, how are we going to have a good time? Right. If people, what are we going to do? Sit around and read the Bible all day? You know, that just didn't appeal to me. Right. So therefore, you know, I never, I, I enjoyed being around Christian people. Right. I went to church, but I never went to church for, because I wanted to go. I went to church because somebody else wanted me to go. Yeah. Or, and that, and yeah, that's such a common um, thing for everyone who is a believer and, and certainly everyone who isn't. They think it's this thing where you come in and then they tell you, don't do any of that stuff you like doing. And a lot of churches are that way. And, um, you know, so and they're partially right. But true Christianity is, hey, you can do anything, but who do you want to be? And I think about there's a scripture that that Paul wrote saying, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And again, and that's like Bible speak or whatever, but he's basically saying you can do anything, but that doesn't mean you should do anything. And um, again, because we think it's in the Bible and it happened 2,000 years ago, we kind of go, yeah, whatever. But then I started thinking the other day, Paul was a guy that had murdered people. He might have raped people. He was a guy who had really done some evil things. And so for him to say this held some weight that he was saying, you can do anything, but where do you want to wind up? It's my opinion that your short term is either going to inconvenience your long term or your long term is going to inconvenience your short term. And it's up to you which one of those things is more important. I think about problems I've had with church as a whole or with the church that I'm attending and problems that I see other people have. I see like a reoccurring pattern when I listen to people have problems with church. It always usually comes down to one core element, and that is an abuse of power. When you see someone in leadership anywhere and you see them abusing their power by either pretending to be more um, spiritual than they are, pretending to be more holy than they are, and using God as a scapegoat to cover up their sins, um, it's just really unattractive because you're seeing an abuse of power, and it makes you, like, want to reject that. Um, Whereas Scripture, if you, you know, Scripture itself would not allow uh, any of those things that pastor is abusing or that leader is abusing because Scripture doesn't make caveats for anyone. And I think about this all the time where um, sins that are normal to me are like my pet sins, So they're fine. When I look at them, I think, oh, those are fine. But then when I see other sins that people have that I don't have, I go, that's weird and it's bad. And I just sort of throw them under the bus internally because they're not normal to me. But normality has nothing to do with how moral something is. It just means you've done it a lot of times. So have you ever had a season of life that you thought you would never get out of as as a mental state? Um, I ask this every time because of years ago when I went through depression and, and feeling suicidal, I, I, there was a part of me during that time that felt like I would never get out of it, that I will always stay in that frame of mind. Um, have you ever had a season oh, yeah. like that? I mean, I definitely felt like, especially after 
my accident and I was still taking the pain meds, even after I, you know, was introduced to the Lord and developed a relationship and was coming to church religiously and, I mean, completely gave my life over to God, I mean, I was still taking a low amount of pain meds because I was still in a certain amount of pain and because I was afraid of not having the medication because of going through withdrawals or whatever, but I wasn't taking the medication to be impaired. You know, it, it I was taking it just as needed, but I, I felt like I was always, I was never going to be able to get out from under hmm. the medication, that this was going to be something that I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And, you know, through the grace of God, I've learned over the last few years that, you know, that's not the case, that um, as long as I have a strong will and a strong mind, I have been able to wean myself down off the medication to a point where, you know, it's as low as it can most possibly get where I can still be comfortable to, you know, because I do have a certain amount of residual pain left over from the accident. Mm-hmm. and But I'm not in denial to the point now where I use that as an excuse to use medication. Right. What do you think the the drugs or medication, what do you think it helped you not think about? Oh, it basically, I thought that it took me, it would take the pain away of my in my mind, so to speak. It's kind of keep me in denial to the point where it would numb the pain to the point where I felt like basically my life as I knew it was over. You know, now that I was in a wheelchair, you know, people didn't treat me the same. I didn't get invited the same kind of places because, of course, at that point it was like I was an inconvenience. Everyone always had to make certain accommodations if I were to come along because, you know, it wasn't as easy as just inviting an able-bodied person to go somewhere because, you know, certain accommodations would have to be met, whether it be an accessible place that I could go to or if, you know, go on vacations or this and that. You know, I can't go everywhere that everyone else can go. I can't just hop in any vehicle and go for a ride, you know, if I want to go somewhere. Of course, I have to have a certain van to be able to go. And, you know, that's just, it's inconvenient and it's frustrating at times because life isn't, I can't just pick up and go on the spur of the moment like I could before. And that's very frustrating. So I would use the medications to kind of numb that reality and kind of, some sort of peace of mind that I was still able to do something, had control over what I did, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. that I still could make decisions as to if I wanted to have fun or not. Because, you know, I felt like if I took a certain amount of medication that, you know, I would feel better. I would, you know, it would put me in a better mood or, you know, but really in reality, all it would do was just put me to sleep for the mm-hmm. most part because, you know, it doesn't affect the body the same way when you're only dealing with, you know, half of your body that it's affecting, you know, and I can't get up and walk it off or whatever. So therefore, it would just, for the most part, you know, knock me out. How has your opinion on fun and goodness changed uh, over the years? Oh, well, now, you know, my idea of fun is nothing. You know, now when I'm around people (laughs) that are you know, partying and drinking and hooting and hollering. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just nonsense. Now I see them it and I'm just like, depressed. right, I'm like, golly, do they, it, it's sad. It makes me sad because I see them acting like buffoons and. Well, I, yeah, I see people running away from something. Right. And when I believe that the people could beat the thing they're running away from, it, it like saddens me a little bit that they are. And then also, uh, some of the times, it's people who would, of course, beat me up about my 
addiction mm-hmm. to pain meds. You know, they would always give me a hard time about, oh, well, you take, you know, you need to stop doing this. You should see yourself. You should see the way you look over there, falling asleep, you know, nodding out, mm-hmm. yada, yada. But then I turn and look at them, and they're doing shots and, you know, taking their clothes off and falling all <laughs> over each other yeah. and this and that. And I'm like, how do you see yourself any differently than the thing? Yeah. You, know, you were beating me up about this right. when you're just being a hypocrite because and that goes back it's to just like people, people's sin being normal to them. I would say that the one of the problems with hedonism, with the idea that if it feels good, do it, and uh, live for today, all that kind of stuff, is that it takes meaning away from the thing that it frees. So let's take sex or whatever. The hedonist believes like have sex with whoever at any time. Uh, regardless of the circumstances, be purely led by the feeling of that moment. Whereas if you look uh, long-term over the life of someone who lives that way and look how void of meaning sex is in their life and how uh, it has led to a a level of loneliness, where now look to people that think totally the opposite by choice they choose to, all right, let's really be intentional about this. Let's not just throw this around, this means something. Being this close to someone means something. Um, And look at the uh, joy and connection and closeness that that group of people has as a result of sex. Whereas, again, people that have supposedly freed it, um, it is free, but it also is completely meaningless. Have you ever gone through a season of anger and resentment, and how are you not there now? Well, for even after I, you know, found the Lord for a while, I still did have, you know, thinking, like I said before, just frustrated with the fact that I couldn't go wherever I wanted to go. I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't feel that people treated me as an equal because, you know, they didn't consider me to make when they made plans necessarily because I may have been an inconvenience. And of course, you know, that got to the point where it really had it would get me down a lot. But now. I've come to the realization that if I'm meant to be in a place, I'm going to be there. That if I can't be there, I'm not supposed to be there. God doesn't intend for me to be there. I Now my entire view of life is completely different. I mean, if I could go back to being completely able-bodied again, I would never do it because my physical walk on earth is nothing near as wonderful and as full of joy and grace as my walk with the Lord now. Mm. I would much rather wheel around for the rest of my life in this chair as long as I know I'm walking with the Lord in my heart than I would ever take back the last eight years if I could go back. I would never, ever go back because I was so lost. I was so, and I, I thought I had everything. I really thought before my life was so great. I had done so much. I had been so many places. I had such great friends. I had a good job. I had, I thought I had everything. But in truth, I had nothing. Like you were touching on earlier about, you know, with sex and so forth. I mean, I basically, you know, did that. I laid down with whomever I could just because of the act of doing so and to try to get a certain love and respect out of someone when really I was just getting the complete opposite. And it does sadden me that, you know, I haven't been able to experience that closeness in my lifetime yet 
because, and I'm already 43 years old, and I haven't experienced that closeness because I did throw away so many years of my life with the thought and the idea of sex just totally twisted because it wasn't all about, you know, a special wonderful closeness that two people experienced together it was all about what I could get out of the situation so to speak Mm. but just the fact that now I'm walking my walk with the Lord is so much better than anything I ever could have anticipated for my life to be in before and the fact that Mm. I get to raise my son in church my son's been in church now since before my accident my sister would bring him to Sunday school and to you know um Always in, uh, over the summer, he would come to vacation, Bible school, and so, so forth. But ever since the accident, he's been completely involved with, you know, children's ministry and now the right. youth. And it is so wonderful to me, and it warms my heart so much to know that he isn't going to experience the things that I've experienced in right. my lifetime because he's always going to know the Lord. Right. And, and if the, one of the beauties of being a believer is that your life is tied into a much bigger story that goes on if you live or die that goes on regardless of what happens on earth that um it is about uh god showing every human his affection for them and doing that through believers but um and and in a way that if you're not a believer you kind of don't have that experience that like we're in a church right now like i could go upstairs and find some like 50 year old guy and we have this very deep thing in common even if his life is nothing like mine and we have nothing else in common, we have this very uh, core sort of alignment in uh, in who we are and what we believe and why we're alive and why we'll die. And, um, and there's something just really beautiful about that. Um, I'm reading a book right now about depression and about how uh, in today's world people are just immediately given... Uh, pills and I was the last chapter I read was about how even if you just had um, a loved one pass away like a son or daughter or father or mother or spouse or whatever even someone who uh, who had someone die in the past like week they'll go to the doctor the doctor will say all right you're really sad and depressed and they'll immediately start putting them on pills the assumption is that they're their brain is broken, that their serotonin levels are too low, and that's the only cause for depression, and that it's not to do with external factors. Um, I don't tend to believe that. I actually believe that, in general, it's to do with your life maybe not going the way that you had planned in this like grieving process of the difference of seeing where you thought your life would go, seeing where it did go, and mourning the loss of you know, who you thought you could have been. And uh, and just that, you know, grief is a healthy part of losing something that you love, that the love is why the grief happens. Um, just any thoughts on that and on the general um, way that people are just freely given medication? Any thoughts on that whole thing? Well, absolutely, because I've, in, when you're talking about, you know, depression and so forth, my, right now I'm dealing, my mother is bipolar, and she's dealt with, you know, highs and lows. She was manic, you know, a few months ago, and now she's in the dumps right now. And, you know, they, of course, did try to give her some sort of mood stabilizers and so forth. But she is a liver transplant recipient, so she can't process medication 
the same way that, you know, a normal person could. So some medications will, of course, have the adverse effect on her than other medications. And I do feel like, just like with the doctor that I went to, just automatically gave me whatever I asked him for because they do think that, you know, these drugs are quick fixes. But the truth is that none of, I mean, I know that some people do need medication to cure certain ailments and certain issues, but I don't feel that it should be given away so freely and so easily. I feel like the testing needs to be done and, you know, that you definitely need to, they need to be certain that it is something that there's a, a, a problem with their chemical imbalances or so forth that right. these medications will help because I feel that if they don't really need the medication, all it does is cause an addiction rather than right. help them with and the I problem. Think, yeah, it's just like any other vice where if you're using it to get away from a problem, um, the assumption there is that the problem is too big that you can't do anything about it. You can't actually fix whatever it is. And again, either because of faith or, or whatever, I tend to believe that you can fix that thing or you can at least get a lot of clarity about what is within your control and what is not within your control regardless of the problem you're facing because I believe you can face it and you can beat it. I tend to not buy that you have to escape it or that you even should. When I had to decide that I wouldn't live as a victim, I realized it was a process. It wasn't even really a moral thing. It was a process of elimination. I either whine and whine and whine and then die or don't do that. And those are the only options, really. When was the turning point for you that you decided, I know this, regardless of the situation, I'm not going to live as a victim in my head? When I finally, after my grandmother died, I decided, you know, my, my friend Tammy, that of course was the person that introduced me to the Lord to begin with, she encouraged me when my grandmother was getting sicker to, you know, it was time for me to get my own place. I needed to, you know, get out from under my parents and my grandmother because I was pretty much caring for them anyway. I was paying all the bills. I was doing everything. and I was enabling everyone. So she said, it's time, Danielle, for you to get your own place and move out with your son and be the mother that you need to be and take your life back. And that's what I did. I, you know, we got our own house and we've been on our own for going on four years now. Mm. And I, at that point, decided that I have got to pick myself up and move myself forward and be the mother that Trey needs me to be, be the person, you know, make the most out of the rest of my life. I'm only 40, you know, I was only 40, 40 years old then. And, you know, so therefore I still have half of my life, hopefully, left to where I can make a difference and I you know I'm my old life is gone my old life is over for my as far as I'm concerned I was born again I started a brand new life at that moment and I've never looked back absolutely um on that note um Danielle is going to be joining me and she's going to be helping me make the podcast I wanted to get her story first but uh but she's just going to be helping me create this thing and and she listened to several of them and is just really um, on board with the mission of what it means. And I'm just really excited to have her uh, working with me. She's going to help me make it consistent, and I want to I have it to where I really never miss a week. Um, thank you so much for your time. Danielle, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me, and we will see you guys next week. Okay, enjoyed it.
I take